Hello and welcome back to Novelty. Now, here's a time for another solo episode. And today, I'm going to speak about anti-heroes and the turning points we have in life. So despite the fact that there have been previous episodes where I've talked about thrillers such as Gone Girl and The Silent Patient, in actuality and reality, it's been a while since I've actually read a thriller. And I needed a read that was a bit more you know, fucked up to make me evaluate my morals and increase my paranoia. And I found the perfect book for that. That book is called They Never Learn by Lane Fargo. Now, in this episode, I want to speak about Scarlett and Carly from this book and how anti-hero is made and how many pushes people require before they break. Now, before we begin... I summarise the book in a minute and a half. And before I do that, I need my obligatory apology for how bad I'm going to do this. I read it quite recently, I can't lie, but because of school, it's like my thoughts are very disorganised. So the way I would tell this plot will therefore be very disorganised. I'll try and rectify it afterwards to smooth out any um, wrinkles in the shit that I'm going to spew. But hopefully it's good enough (laughs) for you guys to understand the overall plot of the book. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Okay, so in this book we have a dual narrative with Carly and Scarlett. Scarlett's a teacher. She's a femme fatale to a serial killer of men who abuse, rape, stalk, or etc. of women. Carly is a student. She's a student. She's vulnerable. She's, um, they're both bisexual, by the way. I don't know. Okay, right. Um, Carly, uh, she came to school. Her family's quite abusive. She comes in and gets two friends, Alison and a guy called Wes. Alison's sort of problematic, but, um, you know, um, the theme is like violence against women, sort of. So, um, Alison gets assaulted. Um, she becomes into now. Carly's um, sort of also half in love with her but also really confused as to why she's acting the way she is especially with guys and their entitlement and their entitlement to women's body she gets angry and then Scarlett at the same time is still murdering you know men like as she does like basically yearly and she's like also kind of fucked because she also might be be caught soon and then she also has this um side side and a side chick side chick of this guy named Jasper that she that he fucks on the side and it sort of gets messy and then you realize that oh my gosh um plot twist or I don't know or whatever um Carly and Scarlett at the same firm but Carly um the younger one is actually like the origin story of why she became the murderer in fact Carly ends up pushing Wes the other friend because he's sort of nice but then he starts to get a bit presumptuous towards the end and starts to, like um add it on her and starts to like insult her as if you know she's entitled to you know I mean she she has to like give him whatever she wants and oh my god and then Scarlett gets almost caught as well with investigation but just ends up being like the murderer or whatever and also the person who's stalking and then finally Scarlett goes with this other woman that she that she's in love with and then towards the end there in London shit that was so bad oh my god okay I need to repair that quick right so you saw I mean I hope that you caught the fact that was due narrative and that Carly was a younger person she was in university but she was also being basically all the men around her were problematic there was not a positive male figure who supported her throughout the book and because of that towards the end when things were hitting the height of her issues with Alison, what happened is that um, 
um, as she was being like abandoned by Alison, Alison's um, um, you know perpetrator, the one who assaulted her, also ended up getting away with it. And then finally, where's the per- the one man she was actually able to feel at least a tiny bit comfortable with? Then started to try and get on with her. She snapped, and I think um, it should, I don't, I know she killed him. And then that started the um, sort of the cascade for her to realize, oh yeah, some men need to be dead. And so as we jump to the future, Scarlet herself is now yearly or often killing men for her own enjoyment also to like rid the world of any, you know, problematic men. She does that and then there's a whole investigation and then she realised she might get caught and then realised the person that she's like fucking on the side, Jasper, that's the perpetrator of a lot of some bullshit that's going on. They blame it on him. And then also there's a side plot of her getting romantically involved with another woman. And then it's basically like these two women at the end who are basically partners in crime and murdering men and they move into London. Yep, that's it. Sorry, guys, but hopefully you got that plot for the most part. Let's move on. Okay, now, my first thoughts on this book was that <laughs> the the general trend is that, you know, um, you know, that, you know, the generalisation of men, like, oh, men are trash. But really, beyond that was how much I enjoy reading about antiheroes, because I'll tell you what, it's been a while, because Peaky Blinders, oh yeah, we're going to be mentioning Peaky Blinders today. I hope you guys have watched it. It's a really good TV show. It's on BBC if you're in the UK, outside the UK. Try Netflix or any sort of website you can find it on. It's a really good TV show. It's kept its standard. And I'm not sure about the future TV show after one of the actresses died, who, who was a lovely actress. She played Polly. Unfortunately, she died of cancer. And, you know, rest in peace. But I, honestly, despite of that, it's a wonderful TV show. You get to see her artistry her craft and her talent um that's a side note by the way but um <laughs> i've lost my train of thought uh basically anti-hero anti-hero is really good really fun to read more interesting to read than even normal heroes to me or even villains who sort of piss you off it's a nice middle area that have you that has a person conflicted inside and you have this sort of catharsis when reading it and I really wanted to explore that more. Like, what makes an antihero good, antiheroes bad, antiheroes other different categories of them, but also the creation of an antihero. You see, in sometimes um, TV shows, even creations of villains, but also in you know in the middle of antiheroes, it's that turning point, that peripeteia that causes someone to just snap and completely change their worldview and their future actions and the way they condone themselves. It turns their life into before and after. And I guess in our normal lives, you might think of a one moment in your life where you're like, yeah, before this or after this. And you're like, oh, that was a point where there was a clear demarcation of my personality or my future trajectory in life. And I thought in this book, there's a good way to explore that more. So that's what we're going to do. So the first thing we have to think about, though, is what exactly makes an anti-hero so as i was exploring online sources about it i didn't actually find much but what i did find was quite little but quite useful and there were three main characteristics that i did find about anti-heroes one being having to be at odds with society second they do have to be motivated by self-interest perhaps 
And the third thing is that the actions or morals are more or less noble. Okay, so to attribute it to the book with Scarlet slash Carly, we know that she's at odd society in the sense that she, she murders people in the first place, but also because she believes that there are clearer ways or more uh, successful ways to clear out the dirtiness of um, men's actions. And she is, I would say that in the book, she does mention that she enjoys the kill. So I say that is attributed to motivated by self-interest. And of course, because of the violence against women, I would say that her morals in that aspect are noble. <laughs> I know because society is corrupt, people are wrongfully, wrongfully prosecuted and oppressed all the time for the color of their skin, their gender, sexual orientation, wealth, status, age. We all know it's true. But in this story, what happens when the protagonist decides to strike back against the status quo? And now here, we're at the point where we can categorise different anti-heroes. Now, what I was saying before links to the moralistic anti-hero. So besides the book, I'll try and get an example from perhaps anyone's general TV show knowledge. Breaking Bad, right? Walter White. He's at the beginning, pretty normal guy. Yeah, a bit sad to look at, I'll be honest. And he has like a family, you know, home. Kind of sad if it's a bit sad country teacher. And then when he's diagnosed with cancer, you're like, oh, sad. And then he pushes against the status quo and then starts to, you know, cook mess with his, you know, old student. Um, becomes, um, you know, Heisenberg and everything. And I guess it's less moralistic and more, I would say it's more of like a reject anti hero. I'll get onto that later. But the way he, at least the initial audience emotions towards him is a sense of pity. And um, I don't know, I would say watching him as someone who seemed very subdued, you see a lot of pride in how his, um, his condonement of himself, where he carried himself became more strong and once he starts pursuing financial power he turns in my opinion more villainous but in that middle section i would say is more anti-hero the thing is that isn't really necessarily as moralistic as i would say scarlet was because scarlet decided to murder men for the purpose besides her own enjoyments of interest but for the purpose of ridding the world of all nasty men who potentially could be um harming the vulnerable and then with another category of um anti-hero or anti-protagonists that have um you know sort of dubious characteristics there's also the corrupt protagonist and that's where thomas shelby comes in and i would say he's definitely a corrupt protagonist right so he lived in a corrupt system of course with he was deeply traumatized by world war one we had constantly told in the TV show that, at least in the first season, that before he was, like, so, like, cheerful, and now he's, like, Arthur, <laughs> you know, shit like that. But you know what? For him, for the most part, he just wants to win. He wants more power. Yes, he does protect his family, you know, for the most part. But I would say it's more out of, like, he needs to rather than he wants to because his family is basically his team, if he were to uh, accidentally murder his family, I guess that would, you know, 
deprive him of the power that he holds. So therefore, that wouldn't be um, advised. But think about like, okay, spoiler alert for Peaky Blinders because that's a bit more recent than Breaking Bad. Say for example, um, thinking about the char- character Danny Wizbang. So this is all the way back in season one. He's the character that was deeply traumatized by World War One, and he had a lot of um, fits. So like, I think the um, the most dramatic scene with him was when he went into a pub and he had a flashback and he was um, disrupting a lot of um, places there and started to, um, I think, attack people. And we remember when there was issues between one of the gangs, I think. I'm not sure if it's the Italians or not, but all the um, two of the gangs were sort of beefing. And towards the end, he shoots... Danny in the head and he falls into a boat and to the audience point of view he's dead we then find that he isn't dead now I think this is the point where you sort of veered off into two perceptions of Thomas Shelby either you thought that he was protecting a friend's life or he was playing a really smart game plan and the thing is it's complicated is that faux heroism and self-interest or is it actual care about someone he liked, he deeply appreciated before? Like, think about it when in the round season four, again, more spoilers, when John died, the way he condoned himself, it was very stoic, very, like, stone-faced. Maybe it was sad because of what we know about Thomas Shelby. I may, I'm going on a big side note about Peaky Blinders right now. I just really want this last season to come out. There's complexity, essentially, in anti-heroes. I've gone on a big tangent, but this complexity that that are uh, corrupt protagonists where they're deeply influenced by self-interest, however, have those humane qualities that you have to sort of see and, like, analyse, and you're like, oh, he does care a little bit, but then you're like, does he care or doesn't he? And because he is an outright villainous and trying to murder and pillage everyone, you you tend to just look at him... And in a different way, sometimes. And then the moralistic antihero, I would say that relates a lot to vigilantes as well. Maybe Deadpool might fall into that category as well, because he is murdering a shit ton of people in a very humorous way, but, uh, you know, to save people, but at the same time, he is murdering a lot of people who might not have been deeply involved in the, in the trauma that was caused as a result of the true villains. And so his collateral damage might, you know, make him into more of an anti-hero than a proper hero. And, yeah, the point is, anti-hero is complex. Scarlet, complex. More likely a moralistic anti-hero. We looked at moralistic and corrupt protagonists. Those are the two that I found out about. There's another one called reject anti-hero. He's one that's rejected from a society. And I couldn't really think of a decent example for my own... um, media um <laughs> knowledge but yeah so the next thing i wanted to speak about is the making of a villain or even anti-hero and something that i've noticed with many tv shows or movies or literature is that there's always a turning point it's never just, you know, a build-up of activity, but literally something happens, there's a particular consequence, and bam, they're an anti-hero or they're a villain. 
And it sort of, to me, is very linked to at least my perception of a mental breakdown. So a mental breakdown, what's that? It's not a very medical term. I don't think it's ever used like genuinely, genuinely in the medical community. But it would be considered to be when you're, when you've, when you've hit rock bottom. So think of it as like bad things keep piling up and up and up and up until you can't take it anymore. And everyone had a stopping point. I'm sure someone's found it at some point. Maybe it's more subtle. Like you're doing something, you trip over or like, oh, perfect example. You're pissed off in your room, try and leave your room and then your um, belt buckle gets like caught in the <laughs> the door handle and you're just there and you just get angry, 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 shaking <laughs> kind of shit. But here's another example. So you're driving your car on the way to work. It breaks down. You get to work late. You get fired because you're late. Your car gets towed late that day. You walk home from where you last parked and you find that your wife has left with your children. Oh, your parents also died in the plane crash. And your emotions overload and overload with things that you don't know how to handle. And then you break down. Now, in reality, you can hope that you can, you know, come out of that. You maybe have a panic attack and then you just deal with every problem as it comes. Now, with TV shows and movies, it's usually a tiny bit more dramatic than that. And as a result, I've noticed something about it. Besides it being more dramatic, I feel like it's always in... Uh, media a point where they reach that breaking point they have some sort of news something happens someone dies and they're like but also someone else is there as collateral damage and once that collateral damage is done they're forever changed mentally so an example i could think of is from umbrella academy so end of season one again spoilers for stuff and vanya Found out about her powers. And then I remember Alison was, I think it was like one of the last episode. Alison goes like to Vanya to like calm her down. And as she's speaking to her, and, and Alison's trying to control her by using her, you know, mind control power. Like I heard him like XYZ. Vanya lashes out with her violin bow and accidentally like slits Alison's throat. And that's when you realize she is deeply traumatized. And she escalates until she like you know destroys the whole world and causes the apocalypse. In Carly slash Scarlet's case, it was when she was hit on by Wes. She snapped after the trauma of being abandoned by her friend that she was half in love with, Alison, and all the men, her father, her mom, who basically implicitly like basically abandoned her emotionally. And all the men around her that had treated her badly. And the one person she thought she could rely on who held a little like, beacon of hope for the men in the world hits on her and basically insults her for not um, engaging with him. And he, she snaps and pushes him, pushes him off this building and he dies. And at those points is when these two characters get like a taste of violence. And it's like they have to push forward with it. So with Scarlet and that push and that snap and that, you know, irre- irreversible change, she then decides to push against the status quo and become a woman vigilante against violence 
against women, against men who are violent, against, against men who are violent, against women. I, I hope that makes sense. And I guess it was just, and I guess it was just really interesting to read about that, about watching people snap. It was very cathartic in a sense. It makes, I don't know, like, say if we're looking at, looking at it in like a Freudian race, so like the ego, the super ego and the id, this is just everyone's id that is able to just go a bit, get a bit loose, but it's balanced with, you know, the ego and super ego a bit more, at least the id is a bit more higher up than people in their daily lives would be. It's like feeding into a bit of darkness there. But of course, as we move on, we need to understand why people love anti-heroes. It's to my perception, at least when I'm growing older, at least right now, and my own engagement with literature and media, I tend to enjoy anti-heroes the most out of literature. Because there's something more complex about them. Because they're more complex, I'm more confused about how I feel about it. It's not so, it's not so clear-cut. And whilst there is satisfaction in having clear-cut emotions about a narrator in a book... When it's a bit more complex, you tend to engage deeper with it, not just with, with the face value, with the words on the page, but also your own thoughts about the words on the page. You're like, oh, I don't know if that's right, but you know what, I'm going to read on. Ooh, I like that bit, but I can't do that in real life. It's it's an escape, isn't it? It's a good way. It's almost therapeutic. So you're able to engage with this without, you know, engaging and, you know, murdering someone who pissed you off earlier in real life. Huh? And Jordan Peterson says something really interesting about this, why we love anti-heroes. I'm going to put the clip in now. If you ever heard of um, Jordan, Jordan Peterson, he's like this guy who does a, a shit ton of speeches in like university. I don't actually know who he is properly, but if you're on YouTube and you search him, a lot of people are in love with this guy. <laughs> like in love with him, which it confuses me. But uh, yeah, that's here's a clip. It makes sense. It sounds nice and eloquent. Oh. Part of the reason that people go watch anti-heroes and villains is because there's a part of them crying out for the incorporation of the monster within them, which is what gives them strength of character and self-respect because it's impossible to respect yourself until you grow teeth. And if you grow teeth, then you realize that you're somewhat dangerous and, or maybe somewhat seriously dangerous. And then you might be more willing to demand that you treat yourself with respect and other people do the same thing. And so that doesn't mean that being cruel is better than not being cruel. What it means is that being able to be cruel and then not being cruel is better than not being able to be cruel. Because in the first case, you're nothing but weak and naive. And in the second case, you're dangerous, but you have it under control. And, you know, a lot of martial arts concentrate on exactly that as part of their philosophy of training. It's like, we're not training you to fight. We're training you to be peaceful and awake and avoid fights. But if you happen to have to get in one, and, and I guess the philosophy also is, is that if you're competent at fighting, that actually decreases the probability that you're going to have to fight because when someone pushes you, you'll be able to respond with confidence and with any luck, and this is certainly the case with bullies, with any luck, a reasonable show of confidence, which is very much equivalent to a show of dominance, is going to be enough to make the bully back off. And so the strength that you develop in your monstrousness is actually the best guarantee of peace. But, again, 
why do we love them? It's my, at least, it's my opinion that Andrew Hill's work, because they begin and they grow and they bud from the desires and needs that we understand. So, example, like respect, love, greed, power, dignity, and then go after them in a way that we find sort of repellent, unwise, or just plain illegal. Like, we would never, ever do what they do, but we understand it, you know? You, you give the reader, the audience, the chance to play, what if I did this? What if I indulged my desire to tell everyone to F off, go away, fat here, and, you know, just go your own way? And what if you just indulge the desire to just, like, manipulate everyone around you and just, you know, go for your own way and be a bit more selfish? And you scratch that itch in the way that you never experienced in like ever because you're seeing it or reading it and that's exactly what you know the purpose and to hear that is to me but then you also get to see what happens with people and you're like huh yeah i see the consequences there the anxiety of almost getting caught for these murders like scarlet i thought she's gonna be caught so many times the ending really surprised me i can't believe that girl just <laughs> like had it been anyone else i'm pretty sure she would have been rejected and sent to jail for the rest of her life but that's a side note but we get to see many things in an end here we get to see the the thrill of um transgressing against society but also you get to see the thrill of them being punished like, you get to see a shit ton of things happen and it's not necessarily someone who's all the way good or all the way bad you see someone in the middle who essentially asks of a different a few different choices in life but i had another thought why root for them as well like why why do we want them i, f- I feel like i want anti-heroes to win for the most part and it's all very interesting because i think it has a shit ton to do with perspective we're forced into the mind of the protagonist. It shows the world from their point of view and draws us into it. If we read the book, if we read, if we read They Never Learn from a neutral point of view, we would see a woman who's clearly um, sleeping with one of her um, employers slash students who's murdering men on the side and who clearly is a bit rude sometimes. Now, with the context that we had, with her honestly tragic backstory, because I'm so, I feel so, you know, I just feel bad when people don't have support systems in books. Like, it's just so sad. But with her sad backstory, her perception and also analysis of the of the men around her and her struggle for um, finding a partner or finding a partner in crime or even just generally you realise the reason why they're doing what they're doing and you realise there's always an argument made for the reverse and for what that person is doing, what for Scarlet's doing. And it's part of what I think makes these stories about anti-heroes, Peaky Blinders, even Venom as well, Venom, Breaking Bad. The great thing about them that you see 
the anterior's perspective and you try and understand and engage with why they've become that way. And with Scarlett, you see that the men around her, at least from her point of view, had to die. And for the most part, I agreed with her. You know, all men must die in her eyes, basically. No voila mogulis, as they say. But thank you for listening, and I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I'll read the end of the book, as I usually do. And I hope you guys continue to, you know, listen and enjoy it, because I'm trying my best out here with school and juggling both of it. I'm not sure this is my favourite episode, but you know what? I do like antiheroes, and I really want to watch more shit like that, or read more shit like that. And I hope that you guys at least somewhat enjoyed it, or even find something that you liked about it. Okay, so this last bit of the book is when Scarlett and her partner Mina who is a woman who, despite finding out about her murdering bunch of men, came to respect her and love her perhaps even more, um, is living with her in London and essentially is helping her, I guess, with her alibis concerning the men she kills. So here's the last bit. I, uh, she also, towards the end, they're planning on murdering this man. And, yeah, she's on her way out. I clinched the belt of my black trench coat around my waist. Then check my bag to make sure I have everything I need. Mina watches me. Her brow pinched with worry. She always worries when I go out hunting. She never wants to discuss the details afterwards. She just asks, is it done? And I nod. And we go back to our cosy academic life until the next one. For me, this work will never truly be done. She opens the door, letting the misty night air seep into her entryway. The fog is so thick, you can barely see a foot in front of you. Exactly why I chose to strike tonight. Edward always goes out drinking with his colleagues after work and walks home alone along the Thames. He'll never see me coming. Mina pulls me in for a kiss. Fingertips ghosting over the serrated pink scar across my collarbone. My lovely parting gift from Jasper Pryor. Be careful, she whispers against my mouth. She looks so gorgeous leaning against the, fo- the door frame, eyes glowing in the dim light, ringlets wreathed in fog. Sometimes I can't believe she's real. I can't believe Mina, Mina can look at me and see everything, the woman and the monster, and love me anyway. Since the night I pushed Wes off that roof, I thought I had no choice but to live my life in jagged pieces. But for the time being, at least, I can have it all. Don't wait up, I tell her. Mina smiles. No, you can't stop me. Enjoy your life. Breathe well, sleep well, and read and watch some antiheroes. Confuse yourself for a little bit. It might be fun.